Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. This is Dirt Radio. Hello again. I'm John Langer. Dirt Radio is broadcasting on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, where sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. What a year it's been, and it's almost coming to a close. First the rampage of the bushfires, and even now the lingering dark shadow of the coronavirus pandemic. 2020 has been a year of change and challenges. This week on Dirt Radio, I thought we might step back a little and offer some big-picture reflections on the changes and challenges ahead, especially in the campaigning and community-building space. To do this, I spoke with Tim Hollow. He's the executive director of the Green Institute and a visiting fellow in the School of Regulation and Global Governance at ANU. He's recently published an essay in the spring edition of the Arena magazine entitled there's no time left not to do everything. I spoke to Tim Hollow last week about some of the ideas and issues raised in this essay. Just to get a bit of context for our discussion, take us back to February this year to the National Climate Emergency Summit. You were part of a panel discussing citizen action. And I was wondering if you could tell us what happened and why was this noteworthy for you? So I found... The Climate Emergency Summit, an amazing event in many ways. And, you know, it's important to emphasise that it was one of those fantastic spaces where you brought, you know, they brought together hundreds and hundreds of, of really committed climate activists from around the country to discuss where, where we're going next. But there really was a, a, a critical tension um, throughout the whole summit, I think, it's fair to say, and I've had this conversation with lots of people, between those who, who see climate emergency action through the lens of government emergency action and governments declaring emergency and acting on emergency in the way that governments do, which is consistently suspending democratic rights, suspending um, civil and political rights um, and, and moving from there. Um, and those who see emergency action as the the amazing instinct for mutual aid that comes at times of emergency. You see it in, in bushfires, in floods, in all sorts of, of times of emergency. Um, citizen groups, people on the ground, immediately get together and start doing things together. I think that tension was really running right through um, that summit in February this year. And the, um, the Citizen Act panel, um, I and a couple of others on that panel were, were clearly kind of making the argument that what we really need to be doing is, um, is institutionalising that community instinct for mutual aid rather than asking or demanding of governments that they act um, on, a, on a state of emergency because... We fear that governments acting on a state of emergency, firstly, really won't actually solve the problem. 
because they're just not ready to do so. And secondly, we'll undermine a whole lot of other things that we desperately need, the move to justice, the move to, um, to a better democracy. So I was challenged by a member of the audience after my presentation on that panel um, with, with the relatively obvious question, you know, do, do we really have time for that? Is there time, given how little time we've got to face up to the, to the climate crisis, is there time to make those kinds of deep systemic changes that you're talking about? Um, and my response was to put it back to the audience, asking the audience, do you, does anyone in this audience actually believe that we will get emergency action from governments that will seriously face up to the climate crisis? Do you believe that the current government or the alternative government that we have will actually do what's necessary? And it was really stark to me that even at that summit with the people in that room, not a single person, not even the person who asked the question, actually said yes. Um, so that really kind of brought it home to me that rather than asking, do we have time for these really deep, big changes that we know are necessary? The question should be, do we have time not to? We've run out of time not to do this, frankly. We've run out of time not to seek the huge systemic changes that we know are actually necessary for us to face up to the climate crisis, let alone facing up to the climate crisis intersecting as we know it does with the economic crises, with the health crises, with the social crises, um, with the crisis that we are having in democracy. They all intersect. This is actually the, 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 the next uh, point that I was going to raise with you is that you, uh, you point out that the current democratic institutions, I think this is actually what you're just about to talk about, the current democratic institutions that we have in the current trajectory of political discourse aren't really capable of taking on these crises that you're talking about. Kind of expand a little bit briefly on, on that, those points. Yeah, sure. So, so the system of government that, that we have, um, the system of, of political economy, that we have, put it that way, that ties together both our, our you know, democratic governance and our, and our economic um, governing system is the cause of the problems that we have. It's a system based on adversarialism where um, you know, our politics and, and our economics are based on competing um, sides which are seeking to effectively destroy the other. It's a system based on, on extractivism um, the, the whole system is based around treating um, the, the, the planet, the planetary resources, the, the soils, the trees, the animals, and we ourselves, humans, as resources that we need to extract value from. That's, that's the fundamental basis of our economic and political system, adversarialism and extractivism. And that's what leads to, you know, we can see that in capitalism. We see that in patriarchy and colonialism. Um, and our political system is directly um, descended from that process, and um, and it's deeply, deeply you know, embedded in that process. So there's no evidence that a system that is designed in that way, um, that is buttressing the damage that we are doing, can actually solve the problems that we have. Um, and I think what's what's almost more stark at the moment is that 
as we're moving very, very rapidly into, into what's been called the age of consequences, you know, we're no longer talking about climate change as something in the future. Climate change is here, it is now, and it is getting worse. And the pandemic is part of the same kind of system of, um, of you know, damage to the natural world and forcing um, wild animals into closer proximity with each other and with us. We are well and truly living in the age of consequences. And we are going to be having facing rolling crises from here on in. And this system of adversarialism um, and of extractivism will make that worse. It will make it harder to survive, not easier. And what, what I think this should help us do is actually, it's quite liberating, you know, when you, when you put all that together and say, all right, well, what we need to do in order to face up to climate change is actually the same thing that we need to do in order to enable us to survive um, and not just to survive, but to thrive, to live well. It's what we need to do in order to have a good life that, that we all share interdependently with each other. We need to build new democratic systems, new economic systems um, that are based on, on cultivation instead of extraction, that are based on discussion and deliberation instead of adversarialism, that are based on coexistence instead of the systems of, of supremacy that are so embedded, that are based on reconnecting with, with each other and with nature instead of the, the, the deep disconnection at the heart of our current system. Um, and if we do that, um, we can actually do it incredibly fast because when you look at the way systems evolve in nature, um, you know, with, with punctuated equilibrium, equilibrium with, with, with cascades, change can happen really fast if you kind of set the circumstances up for it to happen. Um, so, yeah, that's what led me to, to kind of ca calling that, um, that essay that, that you're following up on with this interview, th there's no time left not to do everything. <laughs> um, mm. you know, there's no time left not to actually face it in this way. You're listening to Tim Hollow talk about some of the issues raised in his recently published ARENA essay, There's No Time Left Not to Do Everything. And we're Dirt Radio. More after this. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Let's turn to green politics and green political parties around the world. You argue that green parties tread a fine line, that they're often engaged in what you call supplicant politics. I was wondering what you were getting at here. So, yes, I, I think green political parties have always trodden a very interesting fine line between um, being part of the system 
seeking election to the system and making change through the system through you know reform and 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 challenging and um you know legislation and and the policies of government um and actually being outside the system and saying very clearly no we we critique this system we don't believe it is what is necessary um but we also believe it's important to continue to be part of it um through the process of changing it it's a really it's a really fine line to trade and i would argue that the same goes for most kind of campaigning and advocacy organizations from from unions through to environment groups you know um through to, to social organizations there's this consistent you know um balance that goes on between critiquing the system and being part of the system and the problem with with being part of the system is that it can lead to um to what i call supplicant politics and what I think of, of supplicant politics as is, is you know, I mentioned kind of the, the fundamental problem of disconnection and, and reconnecting. One of the things we've done with the philosophies of disconnection um, is we've, we've set up the state itself as a separate entity from us. So instead of democracy being the people coming together to govern ourselves, to self-organise and to determine our common future, we've set up a system of, of the state being separate. We, we see the state as a separate entity and then we as the people... Um, our task to make change is is to ask the government for change, and that can happen in a few different ways. It can happen through through you know advocacy groups essentially kind of politely asking, putting the point, we want this change, and and we are politely asking you, the government, to make the change. It can happen through economic power, you know, that we see all the time of of those with economic power simply buying the change that they want. That's also a form of supplicant politics. But I think what's interesting is it also is the same for protest movements, for serious, often quite radical protest movements who still couch the change that they're asking for in terms of demanding that governments make the change. So you're out on the streets and you're protesting and you're saying, you know, these things absolutely need to change and you're demanding it, but you're demanding it of somebody else who holds the power. And I think that's a that's a fundamental problem for us because it continues to to emphasise to buttress this idea of disconnection and this idea that that it's not actually up to us fundamentally it's up to somebody else to make the change. Mm. The the much deeper, better approach to make real change is instead of asking those in power for change, um, which effectively buttresses their power to seek to dissolve that power amongst all of us and to to create it anew so that we have instead of power over we have power to we have power with each other to do things um and and at the grassroots in the community there's so much that we can do that actually um reclaims um our agency in the community that we, we, the people, are the ones who can make the change. And as we start to do it, as, and as we demonstrate our capacity to do it, um, government on one level will actually have to follow, but it will have to follow because it will recognise that actually the power does lie with the people, um, mm. that government must be and should be the people making the change together, um, not as a separate entity. That's how we can make the, the real change that will enable us not just to face up to the climate crisis as quickly as we need to do, very, very quickly indeed, but to enable us to survive what's coming. 
When you're talking about campaigning and organizing, you make an important distinction between community mobilizing and community building. And I think you're, you're alluding to this as well in, your, in what you've talked about so far. What's the difference between these two approaches? And can you give a few examples to uh, help us understand the difference? Yeah, so I think, I think campaigning organisations, in, including the Greens Party, have become much, much better um, in the last decade or so at, um, at community mobilising, which is expanding the democratic space very much. It's about instead of, you know, being advocacy organisations, um, you know, who, who hold a certain amount of power themselves and do that kind of on behalf of the community, what we try to do with community mobilising is go out and 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 accumulate the community voice in a sense. Um, and so what we do is we do a lot of door knocking, we do a lot of stalls and and um, and um, marches where we're trying to bring a whole lot of people together and and we're mobilising people um, by talking to them and bringing them along with us um, and seeking to you know seeking to convince people um, to take part in some way or another with our movement for change. And I hasten to, to emphasise that is crucially, crucially important that we're doing that. It's a, it's a really important um, step that um, the climate movement and many others have been taking in the last decade. But I think it needs to go a lot deeper than that because that's still, that's still mobilising the community through supplicant politics. It's still bringing people along with us so that we can build the power to demand that governments change. <laughs> um, and what we need to be doing is actually building the community as the, de the democratic body, as the body that actually does make the changes and, and create the space for change. And that's, that's what I mean by community building, by, by working with the community um, to actually do the change, to be the change, as Gandhi said, to be the change that we want to see in the world. That's how we make the really deep change that begins to shift and then dissolve the systems of power that have caused the problem that we're in now, the multiple intersecting problems that we're in now. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, one of the things that really struck me as I was starting to think this through um, really deeply um, was around the the fantastic, amazing school strike um, marches late last year in 2019, in September, I think it was 2019, here in Canberra where I live. It was amazing. There were 15,000 people, which which is three and a half percent of Canberra's population. For for those of you who know what that, you know, the the, the importance of that figure in terms of the amazing work of Erica Chenoweth, who, who said that nonviolent movements that that bring in three and a half percent of the population actually then can reach a tipping point where they where they actually change fundamentally the system that they're fighting against. But we didn't do that because we had three and a half percent of the population turn up, make their voices heard, and then go home. And what really what what was running through my head at that point was what if what if we have all of these fifteen thousand people here in this park? and millions more around the world, hundreds of thousands across Australia. Um, what if we have all of these people together and rather than simply raising our voices together, we kind of, 
we congregated and we said, okay, what can, what can each of us do? What can we do together in our own communities? Can we start to, you know, what, you know, are you over here? Are you interested in doing some urban agriculture, some community gardening um, so that we can, we can actually learn how to feed ourselves and, and build, um, you know, build resilience in the face of, of, of climate change. And while we're doing that, really build social cohesion and bring the community together. You interested in that? Let's go over here and talk about that. What about, you know, you know, parents over here who might want to do you know, like walking school buses or, you know, you know, other ways of kind of building community and doing and reducing our, our ecological footprint while we're, while we're doing it. Let's go over there and talk about that. What about those who actually want to set up some, you know, people's assemblies to really discuss the future of our community? Let's, let's work on setting up local community assemblies or not even necessarily just local. They could be geographically distributed assemblies of people who, who are interested in, you know, maybe it's community journalism and they can get together and do some community journalism or they might be interested in, you know, a, um, another form of, of organising. Um, and that's community building. That's where we actually get people together in ways which directly reduce our environmental impact, directly reduce the pressure that we're putting on, on, on the climate and, and our broader ecologies. But they're also bringing people together and creating social cohesion and building these active democratic spaces in our communities. And they're also very effectively dissolving the power of government. They're saying, it's not just up to you. We're not going to wait for you anymore. We're going to do it ourselves. And you have two choices. You can, you can try to stop us or you can follow. Hmm. Um, and so I think that is a, a really powerful um, way that, that we can shift from, yeah, just this mobilising, bringing people together briefly to demand something of someone else and community building. Just finally, Tim, we're at a very particular historical moment. And uh, I guess we're all aware of the fact that none of us have experienced what we've gone through this past year. Uh, the pandemic has forced enormous social, cultural, political and economic changes one thing that you'd like to see happen post-pandemic to address the environment and climate crisis we're facing and to promote change? So there's, there's obvious things that we need to be doing and that a lot of people are talking about that, you know, we need to, to switch out of this idea that, that we need a gas-led recovery into a renewables and energy efficiency-led recovery. It's just so obvious. But again, government <laughs> neither gov neither the governing party nor frankly the entirety of the the main alternative government are really on board with that um so what i'm really excited about is the opportunity as the pandemic starts to ease and as we can start to come together again um to work on the you know the amazing little systems of mutual aid that sprang up before, you know, as the pandemic was arriving too, um, like we saw with the bushfires and see every time when you have, when you have um, emergencies arriving, as I, as I was saying at the beginning, the community starts to come together and, and self-organise and, you know, people letterboxing each other saying, I can help with deliveries if you need it or call me if you just want someone to chat and these little mutual aid systems. I would love us to start gathering around those mutual aid systems and talking in our community about, okay, so, well, wow, we survived. Thank goodness for that. We actually came out of this pretty well. What worked for us? What didn't work well for us? And what are we going to do better next time? Because there's going to be a next time. We know there's going to be a next time. We don't know if it's going to be a pandemic or fires or floods or what it's going to be, but there'll be next times. There'll be lots of next times. What can we start to do now? 
ourselves in our community without waiting for anyone else that can build the systems of resilience here, that can actually build resilient communities. Resilient communities are ones that are connected, um, but, you know, diversity in that connection, interdependent with each other, um, and lots of kind of layers of, of redundancy. So you're not kind of relying on just one, one connection here. You're, you're relying on a multitude of different connections across the community. Um, how can we build the systems of interdependence in our community that mean that next time something like this happens, we're better off? And that also mean that next time something like this happens, we're not reliant on government. Um, and we're not going to be kind of begging government to do things that we know that they know, don't necessarily want to do. And that's how we can build to, um, to survive and to thrive and to shift the systems that are holding us back. That was Tim Hollow. He's executive director of the Green Institute and a visiting fellow in the School of Regulation and Global Governance at ANU. His recently published essay is entitled, There's No Time Left Not to Do Everything. It's in the spring edition of Arena Magazine. And if you're interested in reading the essay for yourselves, it's available online. We'll also put a link to the essay on the 3CR Dirt Radio website, along with a podcast of this show. That's all from Dirt Radio this week. Back again next Tuesday at 9.30. Let's go out with Steve Winwood and a song that might actually work as a theme for this week's show. The track's called Time Is Running Out. Thank you.